vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown to the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? He answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food to do likewise. Tax collectors also come, came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? He said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. Be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chafe he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. The kids are invited to Kids Church with Emily Greener this morning. After me is coming one more powerful than I, is what John the Baptist said to the people. Advent is this time, as I've said, that we look forward both to the, the second coming of Christ and we look back to his first birth. We sit in that middle spot and we sort of look both ways and we, we kind of find ourselves pulled in these two directions. The, the question I had as we were singing the final songs for this Sunday is, are we feeling dislocated yet? with the times that we live in. As, as the excitement builds for Christmas, as you're hearing the songs more, as, as the time in which we sort of move to, um, if you didn't order it yet, it won't be here for your spouse on Christmas. Um, we move to that sort of place, and the, and the holiday sort of matrix gets more and more. School's gonna be out soon, and uh, here we're still trying to sit in exile. We're trying to resist those poles. Now, for me, I, uh, there's two things. One is I love this, that Christmas Eve then shines all the brighter, and I know many of you travel. So get to a Christmas Eve service, even, even if that church has been celebrating Christmas all four of these weeks, which happens. It'll be Christmas Eve for you, and it'll shine all the brighter. And then here, this is, I, I think, I often say, it's, is it harder not singing Christmas songs before Christmas or is it harder singing Christmas songs after Christmas? Uh, this year we have two Christmas Sundays, um, and we'll be singing Christmas songs with joy those Sundays while the world has moved on. Um, but I think in our own way that can be a sign to us that we live in dislocated space. And that, I think, is part of the challenge with, with um, 
Advent, but I think part of the challenge of being sort of a 21st century um, North American Christian where we still have enough cultural power that you will see people saying, what child is this on TV? I mean, it'll be uh, quite the thing. Um, You'll see these songs and messages ring out, and yet they're um, so dislocated from the places that give them meaning, Um, which isn't to say that they won't be meaningful, um, but like the, we, we pull things apart in the modern world. This is, uh, I've talked before about Alistair McIntyre's After Virtue, or, uh, which starts with a scene from a post-apocalyptic book called The Canticle of Leibowitz, in which all science has been sort of exploded, and they only have fragments that they try to put back together, but of course they end up worshiping these little fragments and stuff like that. that the, the virtuous life and, and the Christian life has been so exploded in the modern world. You may see a flash mob of Handel's Messiah at the mall, but it's so dislocated from the place in which the message of Handel's Messiah is cherished and heard that it's like we have these pieces and memories we put together, but they never quite fit in the way that they should. This is my apology for no Christmas songs yet. So, uh, but, but this is um, good for us to hear this. We've been trying to... Um, I've been trying to put together uh, images for each of the Sundays or, or words. Uh, the, the, the first one, we had this theme of waiting and keeping watch. That the four readings that the lectionary assigned for today, which is, I don't uh, pick Zephaniah, um, uh, the lectionary assigns the readings for today. And so the four readings that we had for today, uh, the four readings we had for that Sunday, they all kind of came around this theme of keep watch and wait. This is where I talk that, that we can get frantic and busy in our lives, and sometimes we need to be still. The next one, it's funny because it was stop. I used the image of a stop sign, so we're not making much progress here. Um, but the stop, I tried to argue, it has a performative action to it. And the first one, we're waiting to see what God might do. The second one, as we stop, we begin to, to till our hearts a little bit more, to, to see what God is going to do, that that um, um, John the Baptist appears on the scene last week. Um, we begin to hear some of the message. As though we don't participate yet, there's more of a performative action on our part. This Sunday, as I said, is, is, is the third Sunday of Advent. We sort of turn our hearts to joy in this Sunday, hence the pink candle. Now, it comes from a Latin word, uh, Guadate, which I'm sure I'm not pronouncing correctly. My Spanish is worse than my Latin, and that is worse. Um, which They're related, aren't they? Yeah. So just bad period on those languages. Um, and English, too. Uh, how to get a job as a public speaker. Um, uh, the, 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 the themes for this Sunday are, are joy. Um, and this is in which we participate, but we, we participate in some sort of joy. Now, uh, the lectionary gives John the Baptist two Sundays. So this is this divide. We had one through three last Sunday and six through 18 this Sunday. Um, and so John, John doesn't get the message. He gives us something to do. We'll talk about that here in a minute. But the other three readings deal with joy and with singing. It's one of the things that I think we should, um, as we go out, we cr- try to keep Defiance Church in, in the season of preparation, but as we have a chance to participate in culture, it's one of the few times we sing together. It's one of the few times that we sing with joy and share in that together. 
all of these have to do with singing. Now, some of us go to places where singing takes place more often, but for the most part, I was, I was being interviewed by a woman for the Aspen Times about uh, the history of, of Mennonites and, and the Aspen Chapel and all that in the area. And she was like, I want to do one on church choirs too. And I was like, well, good luck. They're all dead. Um, which is uh, funny, but true. There's, there's not many left. Um, and so even that idea of community members getting together to sing has fallen on hard times. And one of the things that I love about our church is that we keep the volume levels at when we worship so that you can hear yourself sing and that you can hear others sing. Now, if you stand next to me, that may not be something you appreciate at Defiance Church, but that's the goal, is that we communally lift our voices together, not in a performative way, but that we sing in this way. And so this is the uh, four candles of Advent and then the Christ candle at the end that we light on Christmas Eve. That's sort of the way in which we prepare on this task. And what these songs and what these singing and what this rejoicing about is about is the, uh, God's faithfulness to us, that God has not left us, that God has not abandoned us, that God will be faithful. Is that we sing um, in the beginning of O Come, O Come, uh, O Come, O Ye Faithful, O come, Emmanuel. Lots of O comes in there. Um, come, come, Emmanuel is is that we sit with uh, ransom Israel and uh, exile and captivity, that we await in that spot. And these three, two readings from the Old Testament stand as prophets sitting at the edge of exile. One of the images I like to use for Advent, as many of you know, is the idea that Advent is a prison cell. Bonhoeffer, the quote, a prison cell like this, as he's writing from prison, is a good analogy for Advent. One waits, hopes, does this or that, ultimately negligible things. The door is locked and only can be opened from the outside. Bonhoeffer is writing from his own prison cell as he's saying that in here, you can wait, you can hope, but the only thing that's going to help you comes from the outside. This is one of the hallmarks of Christianity, is one of the only things that helps us is that God comes from the outside to be with us, that comes from the outside to save us, that comes from the outside to unlock the door. Um, and this is Bonhoeffer's idea of this. One of the things that I've, I've, I've neglected as we've gone through this is the notion of exile too, though. Exile is like a prison cell, but it has its own time and length. Um, it has its own challenges that come with it. Exile is where a lot, most of the prophetic books of the Old Testament are written. Um, and exile for the Jews they look at themselves as the failures. This is, I think, one of the unique things about the Old Testament, as what they've tried to set up has fallen and gone, and they're pushed into exile. They don't blame God. They blame themselves. And not only that, these people appear on the scene, these prophets, that lay the case before them how they failed. And they keep them. <laughs> you know, somebody gives you a letter of all the ways you failed. It's like, where do I burn this? Um, uh, and they keep them and they read them over and over again. But part of the reason they keep them is because they hold within the hope of how they leave exile. Now, one of my favorite examples of this is, is Jeremiah 29, which is often shown to us like this. Um, for our, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. It's plan for you to prosper and not to harm. Plans to give you hope and a future. This is vacation. Um, <laughs> 
this is not the return out of exile. This is how somebody else captures it. I did not capture it this way, but if you want to look at it in a second way. The bigger picture of Jeremiah 29, and Jeremiah 29, 11, is way out there in the distance. Um, we take a passage that's written to people who are in the midst of, of despondency um, in their own sort of slavery to their overlords, and we placed it up on, on pictures of Tahiti. Um, I assume that's Fahiti, but Tahiti. Fahiti is not a real place, I think. Uh, yeah. Anyways, um, we miss that this comes to us in exile. Each of the readings we read for today, sing for joy. Um, uh, let us sing is, is what Isaiah says. Each of one of these things, they, they come to a people who have no reason to sing. But to craft the hope of an alternative world, you sing songs about it. You look forward to that day. So we sang, um, my soul is filled with joy this morning, and um, my soul cries out to my souls, which I, I love the language of, we don't, we don't think of our souls enough. There's a book I think I called Overwhelmed, um, not written by a Christian, it's one of those productivity books, but she comes home one day and her daughter's sitting there on the chair, and she goes, what are you doing? And she goes, I'm hugging my soul. Um, a psalmist imagination in that girl in the sense of that like we have this thing within ourselves that rises and lows that gets filled with joy and that empties in despair um we just think of ourselves more unitary than that my soul is filled with joy my soul cries out with a joyful shout i love both those songs because it leads us to mary's my soul next week magnifies the lord which is a wonderful question we'll talk about is what does your soul magnify um, I'll have somebody else give that sermon because I don't want to answer that question. Um, but the idea is, uh, is that we sang those songs and we think, how do we build that world here? But the imagination that those songs come from is how is this world going to get interrupted into that world? We think it's us who builds that world because we have all this power and this ways of being and this, that, and the other, and yet we don't sit in this image. We don't go from here to Tahiti on our own, whether that's the best idea for what God might do for us in the end is personal taste and everything else like that, um, but that we uh, await what God is going to do rescuing us from this place. And that is the great difficulty of, of living and sitting in exile. We can't do it ourselves. We can't save ourselves. It has to come from without of us. Zephaniah is a text I, I'm not that familiar with myself, but as I was reading it and studying for this week, that the people are forgiven is one of the big themes of that letter. And most of that letter, most of the prophetic literature, um, we remember the nice parts, like Jeremiah 29. Most of it is not nice parts or not... Uh, as super reassuring parts, but these people are forgiven their syncretism. They're forgiven the ways in which they've mixed their God with other gods. And when I use each of these things that they're forgiven, I think, you know, we're forgiven our syncretism. It's easy to go, oh, those Jews, they, they syncretized their religion back then. 
um, and not think of the ways in which we engage in our own syncretisms today. But they're forgiven their syncretism. They're forgiven their injustice. This is a, a major prophetic theme as well. They're forgiven the ways in which they've abandoned the plight of the widow and the orphan and the poor and have stored up things more for themselves. They're forgiven that. That's an important word for us as well. They're forgiven their complacency, which is um, of the sins I wish weren't pointed out in Scripture, complacency might be one of the best ones because it's just, I know what I should do. I know how to live this life. And I don't choose other sins. That should be worth something. Uh, But instead, I don't choose the good. I don't choose what God longs for us. Malachi hits this too, is that is the people just sort of yawn through their church services and what God has given them in these stories and this restoration. They don't take it in. And then they're forgiven their corrupt leaders too, which is good news for leaders amongst us. And what happens is that the homeless are brought home in that reading from Zephaniah, that, that they're a restoration happens. And, and one of the things that's said in that passage is that the Lord is among you. That's one of the reasons why we read it during this season, is that, is that God is among these people. He has come among them, and he will rescue the lame. He will gather the exiles. He will give them praise and honor in every land in which they will suffer them home. And at that time, I will gather you, and I will bring you home. Most of us, again, speaking about our souls feel a bit of, of, can feel a bit of lostness in the world, a bit of a shipwreckedness. And normally it happens uh, 3 a.m., um, give or take, which makes for a lovely morning alarm. Um, but we exist in our own sort of uh, longing for something more. It's perhaps one of the, the odds parts of not living in exile is we can build pretty good lives here. We can go to the image of Tahiti and try to abandon the idea that there is a greater fulfillment coming. We can get complacent. But what God says here is that you will restore the homes that we are longing for, the place that we are waiting to go. And so Zephaniah stands at the edge of this day proclaiming that. Isaiah, I think, does one better than Zephaniah in that image of of water from the wells of salvation. One of the hard parts about reading the Psalms, for instance, is it says that the Lord is my light. And light is a, a, we have light switches. And so it's nice to know that the light switch works. But if you live in a world where dark is dark, there is no electronic light, and torches are the best that you have, and that, and that light is this thing that brings comfort in those times. And, and we, you know, my mother used to say nothing good happens after 8 p.m. But like back then, really nothing good happened after the lights went out because there was no, no um, uh, options for anything else. That was when you could go and create your own havoc in the world so that God is our light. This one, water, we have taps and access to clean water all the time. But in the world that Israel is living in, that to be restored to wells of salvation, to have water in your midst, in the midst of a desert, in the midst of emptiness, is a restoration beyond what we can picture. It's God's work for them to restore to them the wells of this salvation. 
One of the things that Isaiah says, he says to them, in that day you will say, this was what the lectionary cuts off, um, I will praise the Lord, although you were angry with me, your anger has turned from me and you have comforted me. For some reason, the lectionary sometimes don't think, doesn't think that we can handle the idea that God would be angry with, well, I don't understand that. But, um, but in that day you will say, in that day you will perform. One of the things that, and this connects to Paul's letter too, is that so often we use Jeremiah 29, 11 and other passages or give advice. But one of the things that Isaiah is saying to the people is, let us pray. Now there are times in my life where, um, because I'm a pastor and I think I'm decent at giving advice, <laughs> so, and, and, and helping, I mean, I don't know what else, I don't know what else to say about that, but, but that like I can help people, uh, I do think I help, I can help people think through their problems. I have some training in therapy, I, I've seen a lot, people tell me random things, so I get a wider gamut, I'm not trying to defend myself now. Anyways, um, we, uh, I can get locked into that and begin to try and bring different this, instead of saying, let us pray. And you will sing, and you will rejoice, and you will be that people. There was a, one of the, I think, um, uh, more moving parts of, of the last presidency, two presidencies ago, was uh, when they, they sang Amazing Grace at that funeral. Because there's a, bit, a, li- a little bit of the more we talk and the more we try to explain and the more we try to um, it, uh, move into this from the outside, we just muddle things up. But taking the moment to pause and sing brings something different from the outside. Let us sing. Let us pray. I think for us during the season, to be a people when we go into these situations, and family conflict does arise during the holidays too, to be the people, the non-anxious presence, the phrase I use often, to say, why don't we pray? Why don't we sing? And, and this is, uh, when you pray, pray like this is what Jesus says of the Lord's Prayer, is that we, be, we have language and words for the comfort that comes from this already, most notably in the Psalms, but other places in Scripture too, in which we can go when we don't have words for this. Isaiah invites them into the wells of salvation and proclaims something else for them. The Philippians reading, um, unfortunately, sometimes is abused as much as the Jeremiah one, um, because rejoice always. Stop being, uh, you know, the, the pe- some, sometimes the people who say that to you, I don't know, I am not as holy maybe as some of you, you just want to like slap upside the head. It's like, that's not the time um, or the place. And sometimes they're right. I mean, I don't want to say that like, there aren't times where they're like, you know, it's not so bad, rejoice. It's like, well... You might be right, Um, but sometimes it just is kind of like interrupting in the room. But Paul, as we talked about prison, is writing from prison when he shares this with the Philippians. He doesn't know what the future is holds. And yet his stance for them is this performative rejoicing that they should have. And what they're waiting is that thing we await in Advent in that second sense is the day of the Lord. Paul says, for the Lord is near. For us to have within ourselves that anticipation that the Lord is near, that the restoration is to come, that God is going to repair this place 
is the call within ourselves. And it brings us to what Paul says of rejoicing always. And that rejoice for him is a behavior that makes habits. The tense that he uses there in the Greek stresses that as you're rejoicing, you will build more things in your life. We're lucky he says this from prison because we can't come back with other things to say. Well, has he thought about this? Paul is in his own spot. What's promised is that the peace will guard our hearts, that God's peace will come into that place. We, again, thinking about ourselves too uh, interiorly, like God's peace will guard us. Um, It's something perhaps we should cherish more than we do. This brings us to John, who perhaps doesn't get the point of Christmas. Um, now, Kim read today, because Kim's artwork goes up today. Um, one time I said, you've never gotten a Christmas card that said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Kim is a doodler during my sermons. You can ask to see her doodles afterwards. She often tries to do better on whatever I drew up there, which I guess is one way to kill the time. Um, but uh, she drew me a Christmas card that said, John the Baptist, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Um, I should send it to someone. You did write it to me on the inside, but I just think that there's a market there for, um, for holiday greetings. Uh, last year, well, that's a different story. Um, uh, but there's a market there. Um, but John, here he says, he appears on the scene after he's been promised to, to level and flatten things, to... to People are coming to him to receive this baptism of repentance and for the forgiveness of sins. And being the great megachurch preacher he is, he says, you brood of vipers. Um, God must be up to something in John the Baptist. And I think that there's an integrity to his life. I mean, there are pastors I know who speak harshly to their congregation, um, but it often doesn't seem to come out of an integrity. of John lives in the wilderness, uh, he, he dresses and eats a diet that suggests he is one who takes this seriously. It's almost as if to say, you're coming out to this place where I live to go back to where you go and to continue your life as usual. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? And a couple of things happen in this John passage. One is in which he... Um, He tells them to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. That in some sense, and and the Greek word for repentance, I often try to remind us, is is almost like a U-turn. Metanoia is to turn around. It's to change directions. And so what Paul says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance, he is in some sense saying, actually repent. If you've come out to the wilderness, to this place, to receive this baptism— and you turn to go back to life as usual, you haven't made the turn. You're following the path back to where you were. He says, in order for you to engage in this, you have to make the turn to produce the fruit in keeping with the repentance. He says, and I meant to bring a rock up here. He says, do not say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, because God can make sons of Abraham out of rocks. At this time, uh, Gentiles, when they converted, required to go through a ritual washing. Uh, non-Jews when they converted. But, but what John is saying is that even if you're on the inside, you need this washing and repentance as well. The good thing for us to think about as we make up the people of God now in the church, 
Do we rest on our loyals, uh, laurels? Uh, do we rest on what we've done? Or do we hear the message that we need to turn to and that we need to continue on the path that brought us out into the wilderness for our baptisms? The axe is at the root of the tree, and every time that... Here he's got Christmas down. Uh, the axe is at the root of the tree, cutting down... And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Maybe not. Maybe he missed it there as well. Um, but John is, is saying that we need to produce these things, otherwise what good is the tree? It can be tossed into the fire. The next thing is people ask what they should do with this. And John doesn't really give them the impossible task. There's a tangibleness to the kingdom of God, and so he gives them material things. I think if we over-spiritualize the kingdom of God, we can miss that, that it's a material thing. He does give them material things to do, um, but it's if you have two shirts, give one away. If you happen to be a soldier, don't abuse that privilege. If you're a tax collector, um, collect what is fair. You know, there are parts of me that would say, well, if you're abusing, if the tax collection system in the Roman Empire is largely set up on abuse, maybe it's time to stop being a tax collector. If the military system of the Roman Empire is set up in a way vastly different than ours, but it's mainly not great, maybe it's time to stop being a soldier. But what John says to them is, is to do it justly. If you have too much and one near you doesn't have enough, share it. This is an interesting thing because oftentimes when we say, when we look at the kingdom of what God is doing, we make it so impossible that we can sit in our contentment. Sell all you have and give it to the poor. But Jesus didn't mean that, which, you know, most of us live with that tension. So <laughs> let's accept that. Um, but these are things closer to home. You have a lot, give out of the allotness. If you are in a position of power, don't abuse it. If you have an opportunity to cheat, come back to fidelity in your role. These are things within our grasp. Um, he talks about the coming one. I want to read one quote it's a little long, holding together that, that tension that, that we've heard today, though, between the good news, and, and John's, uh, John preaches the good news is what it says afterwards. He preaches in Evangelion, which it's like, it's a little harsh, um, but, but the gospel writer of Luke calls it a good news. But I want to read this and then maybe close with one thought that about holding together, and this is about holding together the good news of joy that we heard, as well as John's um, call to do a little. Um, we spent lots of Galatians trying to say that the Christian life is not opposed to effort. Um, I think a lot of people still deal with that. But this is Oliver O'Donovan writing. I believe I have all... Just got to make sure I've got the right slides. There's an elementary point about Christian ethics that I have thought, sought to emphasize uh, ever since the opening pages of my Resurrection in the Moral Order, published 20 years ago. There is no Christian ethics that is not evangelical, i.e. good news. There can be no change of voice, no shift of mood between God's word of forgiveness and his word of demand. No obedience without gift, 
No gift without obedience. The gift and the obedience are in fact one and the same. They are the righteousness of Jesus Christ, encompassing and transforming our own lives, past, present, and future, to preach the good news then is precisely what we do in expounding Christian ethics today if we expound Christian ethics faithfully. What he's saying in this opening part is that um, the ethical call that we have in the Christian life is the same as the good news of forgiveness. You don't shift from one to the other. You don't say, hey, we're doing gospel today and tomorrow we're going to do ethics. What, what O'Donovan's trying to say is that they are one thing. Um, preaching the good news is the only form of address of which the Christian church as such is capable, whether speaking to Christians or to non-Christians. When we use any other form of argument, quoting opinion poll statistics, for example, or reporting the result of scientific experiments, or suggesting some practical compromise, the relevance of what we say depends on how well it is formed to serve the evangelical message. He's saying that we say what we want to say without trying to fact-check it first, if it is the evangelical message. If the church speaks not as a witness to God's saving work, but as a pundit or a broker of some deal, it speaks out of character. Yet to preach the gospel, whether to Christians or non-Christians, is not a simple matter of offering reassurance and comfort. The gospel, too, has its hard words. Who warned you, vipers, to flee the coming wrath? The righteousness of Jesus is not comfort without demand any more than it is demand without comfort. And this is the most important part of the quote. It is never less than demanding comfort. To hear the good news is to hear demanding comfort. As we sit at the edge in Advent of what God is about to do, and how we are being brought into that. It is both comfort and demand to us. Which makes God uh, demanding comfort by which God makes more of us than we thought it possible to become. And from this, there seems to follow an important implication. The gospel must be preached. This is the rest of his quote. The, uh, the gay Christian, on precisely the same terms, it is preached to anyone else. The hard words theology is given to speak, as John Lacotes has written, are still words of salvation meant for mankind as mankind, not as Jew or Greek. What O'Donovan has called us into here is hearing the hard words of the gospel for us and for our salvation. And so as we sit as those awaiting this turn in our lives to see the birth of Christ and our participation in that, we await what God is going to do to set this world to right, to restore this place. And John has called us through our joy and our singing to our small participation in that. For we await one more mighty whose sandals we are un. Uh, unable to untie. Let us pray. God, you have given us good news in the gospel readings today. As we sit in lonely exile, let us pray. Let us worship. Let us hear. Let us see beyond the homelessness that we are in 
And yet through John, you've also called us into our participation in this reality. As the dawn of this new day is beginning, as the light is beginning to shine on those who sit in death, as his father said at the news of John's birth, that as that light begins to dawn on those who sit in death, we begin to stand ourselves to enact an end to the death works in our own way. And it's not a demand that we look to other people to perform, but John speaks it individually to each of us. Share. Don't use your position to bully. Be fair in your exchanges in daily life. May we hear this comfort and demand together as we are called into the faithfulness of and the righteousness of Jesus Christ who comes to rescue us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.